Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. And uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. My guest today is Professor Simon Critchley, who is Professor of Philosophy at the New School for Social Research. His work engages in many areas, continental philosophy, philosophy and literature, psychoanalysis, ethics, and political theory, among others. Welcome, Simon. Very nice, very nice to speak with you. With you yeah, nice. thanks for doing this. So, uh, as I mentioned, Simon, I have no background in philosophy, so you can pretty much make up anything you would like, and I wouldn't know. Right. Uh, and so, you have written uh, a large number of books, um, all the way from 1991, and you're working on sort of a new theme. Uh, perhaps this will develop into a book uh, mystical anarchism. Um, could you talk a bit about what you mean by that? Well, the, the recent, I mean, the, the most recent thing I did is uh, there was, a, there was a, a lecture lecture podcast that they called Pandemic Mysticism. And right now I'm trying to write a short book on mysticism. I mean, right now at this desk I've got books around me that I'm going to be writing about, and I've got the draft of what I have been writing in my bag. <laughs> and so I, uh, it is taking shape, and I and I, um, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's um, there's an awful lot of different ways of talking about it. But one one way of beginning would be to say that um, I mean I'm very interested in um, religion, um, religion as a as a social phenomenon, religion is something that people live, people do, uh, and they do together, and they experience on their own, so as an individual and a social dimension, and um, I, um, another aspect of it is, is the fact that in the lockdown and the pandemic, 
the pandemic that we're going through and the lockdown that we went through, some people are still going through it, we withdrew from the world. We um, retreated into solitude or into uh, the privacy of you know who we were, our families or whatever it was, whoever we were sharing our lockdown with. And that, and particularly for those people in who did that on their own, the solitude, the, the withdrawal, the retreat from the world uh, threw up all sorts of strange feelings. Um, feelings of fear and anxiety and experiences like insomnia and um, like a, you know, mental instability of a type. And then in some cases, people had you know, strange mental experiences. Uh, hallucinations and various things happen to people. And the odd thing about that is that that, that idea of withdrawal from the world, that withdrawal from the world is something that we can find in, um, in monastic traditions going back thousands of years. Uh, within Christianity, that really begins with um, St. Anthony, uh, Whose, whose book, the book of the, the life of the life of St. Anthony was one of the most important books in the history of uh, Christian, one of the most read books in, in the last couple of thousand years, particularly in um, um, in what used to be called Christendom, which would have, you know, been Asia, North Africa and uh, and, and, and Europe. And um, it was um, he withdrew into a, uh, a cave and in order to. Uh, try to rid himself of desire and temptation and to turn his attention towards uh, towards God. And um, the book that's written about him by the Bishop of Alexandria, Athanasius, was a hugely popular book. And the strange thing about the, the pandemic is that we went into a kind of monastic uh, retreat, whether we wanted to or not, with the difference of this, the difference is we had this technology to... Uh, either rely on or work remotely or not know when to stop working, which is the case of a lot of people. And um, and what and that was kind of a, a key for me for thinking about uh, this phenomenon of, of mysticism and how we might understand it. And I've got tons to say about it, and I'm thinking about it right now. I don't know which way you want to... Yeah, I was going to... Uh, do you think... Um the lockdowns and the pandemic-related separation, so to speak, uh, do you think that uh, sort of bucketed people into different things? I saw some statistic that showed that extroverts uh, are really unhappy. Uh, on the other hand, the introverts are really happy <laughs> with, yes. with the pandemic. They finally get a, get a space where they don't necessarily uh, have to interact with people as, as expected in a workplace, uh, or they have more control over what they want to do, right? So, so I wondered if, you know, this sort of separated people by personality into, into different ways of thinking about it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's, um, I mean, there are people who are, there are people who are, let's say, comfortable in the world, um, uh, I've met some, not that many in my line of work, and there are people who are less comfortable with the world, who find the world impinges on them, and they um, and they try to 
get away from it, to, to control it, because it, it, um, it's, um, it's, it's a threat of engulfment, and one feels kind of overwhelmed by this stuff, and you want to try and make a, a separate space where you can uh, think and operate and um, function on your own. And so most people, introverts uh, like me, uh, had a you know rather good pandemic because happily I didn't get didn't get ill, um, although people I know got got ill. And um, but and and so the world, in a sense, the world finally looked like the world I've already I've always experienced. <laughs> so the world finally matched up to how I wanted it to be in some strange way. So I find the, um, I found the, the lockdown and isolation actually rather easy because I've been doing that my, my whole life. To write books, you've got to be in lockdown. And there's a long tradition of philosophers kind of trying to isolate themselves from the world in order to keep that noise out in order to think. So. Suddenly, everybody else found themselves in that situation, and I thought, oh, great, finally. <laughs> finally, I was right. Something like that. So, so, it's, um, yeah, go on. No, so, is mysticism a sort of self-reflection? Um, as an aside, I live in a place called Mystic in Connecticut. Uh, so, ah. uh, so, so, I don't know how, how we got this name. but So, what is sort of the, the definition of mysticism? Well, it's a very... There's a very long answer to that, um, and like many many categories or terms that we use, it's um, it, it's a problem in the sense in which mysticism um, appears as uh, a concept in the the late 17th century with the rise of you know, broadly what we think of as a scientific rationalistic conception of the world. And uh, it arose to to identify those people that were um, having experiences that rational scientific people were, let's say, suspicious of. So mysticism was, from the beginning, not exactly a term of abuse, but almost a term of abuse. It was contrasted with reason and rationalism. And, and once we begin to get something like... Um, uh, let's say liberal democracy up and running in the 18th, 18th century, then there's a very strong contrast between uh, between reason, um, secular reason, and uh, and mysticism, which is understood as a kind of um, a set of experiences, revelations, ecstatic experiences, which. Um, which are forms of religious life, which are okay to, in a liberal view, okay to experience in private, but which shouldn't be translated into public life. And so the term mysticism comes to name uh, what is perceived as a threat um, to, to reason and rationalism. And that's, um, and so that, it comes with that kind of, that health, that, that kind of health warning, if you like, <laughs> yeah, the actual the actual term mysticism uh, in the word can be traced further back. It uh, the adjective mystikos in Greek means means hidden, 
means something which is hidden, and uh, the the verb it derives from. Uh, some people speculate it means to keep your mouth shut. So the verb muain in Greek means to keep your mouth closed, keep your lips sealed. So there's a sense of um, the mystical as something something hidden, something uh, unspoken, something uh, which is uh, uh, yeah a, a secret of some kind. And but mysticism is something which emerges in the modern period, uh, in in contrast to to reason and rationalism, and it represents a form of religious experience which constitutes or can constitute a threat to, um, if you like, the, the rational liberal political order. And, um, and so, for example, in, in, in philosophy, um, in the modern period of philosophy, which we can say roughly the period uh, after, the, after the work of Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, late 18th century, uh, his worry is very much a worry about uh, religious fanatics, as he would have seen them, religious enthusiasts. Not because of what they happen to experience privately, but the fact that they could begin to uh, implement that publicly and politically. And for, for Kant, that's, uh, that would have been um, kind of like a huge like January the 6th type of event. Yeah, it's a bit of a slippery slope. Uh, Kant would get out of the bag at any point in time <laughs> from a risk management yeah. perspective. Yeah. Uh, but but is I'm very interested in this, in this, in this, so mysticism, I mean, properly understood, this mystical tradition uh, is something which arises within a set of um, religious practices and institutions which basically define every religion. So if we say that wherever there have been human beings, wherever human beings have existed in, in social groups, uh, there's always been religion, there's always been ways in which human beings have symbolized their activity and, um, and sacralized their activity, uh, often around issues as to what is, um, what is clean and what is unclean, what is, what is proper and what is improper. And, um, and the people who are, uh, are usually most um, highly valued in different social and religious orders uh, the people that would be we think of as priests or shamans or elders or whatever we might whatever we might call them are often the people that would uh, have the wherewithal to study and to engage in religious practices and some of them might have experiences that we could think of as mystical so so mysticism you know more broadly understood is an is an aspect of uh, any and all religious traditions, right? In you know Islam, there's the, the Sufis. In in Judaism, there's the there's the the Kabbalists and the and the, the Hasids and so on and so forth. So it's a kind of and it and it's very easy to dismiss uh, these kinds of behaviours and practices as silliness or, or or nonsense. And I'm uh, I'm interested in trying to understand the phenomenon and and describe it in a way that is um uh that, that's, yes, generous and um you know so what, I, what i'm trying to do in this work is trying to read ancient medieval and modern texts which broadly fall under the idea of mysticism and to try and make sense of them because i think they do resonate with whole areas of experience that we we have um right now um I could say more about that.
Yeah, I, I hear a lot of people talk about spirituality, Simon. Um, yes. I don't know. I don't exactly what that means either. But is that sort of a stand-in for for religion? Uh, you know, people don't want to say I'm religious, but uh, you know, I'm spiritual. Um, I could never really understand what they mean by that. Uh, is it sort of in the same direction? Well, it, yeah, it's another. I mean, spiritual really is a term that arises in the 19th century. To you know, it's one of those terms that arises in the kind of collapse of publicly organized religion, and um, it's a kind of easy thing to say that I, you know, I'm, I have spiritual interests or I'm a spiritual person. It's a way of being religious without being religious, in the sense in which you can be religious without having to accept very heavy kind of uh, metaphysical demands. And what interests me really are, are the people that accept those heavy metaphysical demands. So people that believe that, you know, um, God became human in the person of Christ and lives amongst us in the, the form of spirit and God takes the form of a trinity and it has all these sacraments. And that, this is, this is a very, um, Heavy set of things to believe, and it, you know, and here I am in Midtown Manhattan. I'm sitting next to the Patrick Cathedral, which is a kind of yeah, wow, well, yeah, yeah, residue of that that whole framework. And so that seems too demanding and too morally demanding, and maybe a little bit old-fashioned. So a way people can hang on to some sense of religiosity without it appearing to make heavy demands is to call themselves spiritual. Mm. I think it's a bit of a cop out. I think yeah. that. Um, I think we believe all sorts of strange and wonderful things, and uh, we need to own up to it a little bit more. And one more thing, just to, 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 to I guess, yeah. to clarify my 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 background is that I mean, less so now, but about ten years ago, fifteen years ago, um, there really was uh, our, our culture was really defined by what I would call a kind of evangelical atheism um, in the work of people like. Richard Dawkins, uh, Stephen Hawking, and and and, um, and folks like that, and um, and I think that that gets certain things absolutely wrong in the sense in which it just fails to understand how people uh, live their lives and how people make sense of experience and uh, how they relate to other people in terms of that experience. It's just this this idea that. Um, uh, uh, a narrowly empirical idea of science is something one has to endorse or you're a lunatic, I think is a, um, it's a terribly restricted view of things. So I'm not an evangelical atheist. I'm someone who um, is convinced that in, in, those, in those practices that people engage in that are religious, there's something going on which is a, a, a of depth, and it's also something accessible to uh, millions and billions of ordinary people in very immediate ways, and it's our obligation to try and at least understand it. Yeah. So, so going back to the the anarchism uh, idea, so this is sort of an opposite of authoritarianism. Is that the is that the idea? I mean, historically, yeah. I mean, you know, historically, you've got. Um, I mean. This isn't me. This is a view you can find in a, uh, a very famous, infamous uh, German jurist called Karl Schmitt. Uh, and Karl Schmitt didn't much like liberal democracy. 
we thought liberal democracy was uh, uh, an evacuation of politics. In liberal democracy, uh, we just gave things up to, on the one hand, economics, and on the other hand, ethics. We thought that politics was a, a richer sphere of activity than that. And if you weren't uh, a liberal for Carl Schmitt, there were two options. You could be an authoritarian, or you could be an anarchist. And he thought that turned really on how you understood human nature. If you think that human beings are basically wicked, then you end up as an authoritarian. If you think that human beings are basically decent, good, you're probably going to end up as some kind of anarchist. And that's a kind of nice way of thinking about it. But if you think that human beings, if you strip away the, you know, uh, you strip away the, the trappings of society, and um, and you, you tear all that to pieces, then what's going to happen? The authoritarians are going to say it will be it will be chaos. There'll be there'll be there'll be you know people tearing each other to pieces in the streets, uh, and we need law and order in order to uh, to reinstate authority. That's the authoritarian view. Uh, the anarchist view is that if you uh, it's not it's not um, human beings are naturally good and society makes them wicked. And if we carefully remove the institutions and wrappings and trappings of society and we let people express who they really are, then they'll get along this time. Mm. And so, so authoritarians tend to be pessimists about human nature and we need a law and order in order to prevent the worst from happening. And Anarchists tend to be optimists about human nature, and we need to get um, the we need to get government out of the way in order to let human beings get along with each other as, uh, as as they can, which is pretty well on their view. And there are some views. I mean, I I tend more towards the anarchist line of thought, but um, I, uh, I with, with some with some heavy qualifications. Yeah, I would imagine the Homo sapien history, uh, Simon, um, most of our history, I think, was about uh, authoritarianism, right? Uh, either the first clan leader would have stood up and said, hey, I, I am here because none of you guys actually behave properly. You know, I'm going to impose rules on you. Yeah. And uh, contemporary politics is quite interesting. If you look at democracies around the world, it seems to, taking, seems to be taking a, a loop back into a more um, uh, more authoritarian view of governance. Uh, do you think that's right? I think the um, yes, I think that's right. And I think the um, the pandemic has uh, has reinforced that in in multiple contexts. I mean, the um, the great thinker, the great thinker of this. Well, the the great thinker of, during the 17th century of these these problems who seems very relevant at this point is Thomas Hobbes. And Hobbes was writing in the context of the English Civil War or English Revolution, depending on how you see it. I see it more as a revolution than a civil war. And the um, and for Hobbes, this represented a, a real threat. You, you, you decapitate the king, you... Uh, you you let the people rule. You let the new model army take control in the form of, you know, uh, Oliver Cromwell and his troops. The parliament takes authority, and this leads to uh, 
this leads to a kind of bloodletting. This leads to disorder. And we need for for Hobbes, we need the Leviathan of the state. The image uses the Leviathan. We need we need authority. We need uh, a monarch, a monarch that we could not consent to if the monarch did not do our bidding. But we need authority. So the the last year and a half has been, as it, I think, has exaggerated a tendency that's been there for the last maybe 20 years towards forms of uh, more, more, author, more authoritarian, more, more populist and more nationalist forms of, of, uh, of governance. One can see this in India, say. Yeah? Uh, one can see this in, in Britain with the rise of um, uh, yeah, with, with Brexit and um, and one can see this in the United States with the with the rise of Trump, and these are these are these are interesting, you know, signs and symbols. And it's not and it's not entirely it's not that it's entirely wrong. It's not that. I mean, if we think about the pandemic, uh, we think back to say the early um, the early months of it, and you know, the, the person that's in real trouble now, Andrew Cuomo. Uh, rightly seems to be in a lot of trouble, but the, um, I mean, if we think back to April 2020, um, in a city like New York, we were very much in need of some guidance, some authority, someone to say, this is the situation, this is what we do. We needed the state to have a personality, to have a face, and Andrew Cuomo was that. And that, that, that happens from time to time. Uh, and then we forget about it and think that, you know, we can throw all those things off. But in moments of crisis and real threat, then we seem to uh, crave forms of authority and we want the state to have a personality. And that, you know, that's a very risky, very slippery slope. That. Yeah. In, in both um, US and India's cases, um, where we see this trend, religion uh, seems to have played a, uh, a major role and continues to play a major role. Mm-hmm. So is religion, you think, a necessary condition for authoritarianism? I think religion just is the, is the name that we can use uh, for the sets of symbols that human beings just produce wherever they gather. Wherever, so, you know, I begin from this idea of religion as a social phenomenon. It's an idea which is very old. You can find it in the work of Emil Durkheim. And um, so we're, if, you know, if human beings are gonna be in groups, they could be small groups or larger groups, there's gonna be something like religion. And um, but that religion can be harnessed for all sorts of, all sorts of ends. Uh, that can be harnessed for uh, authoritarian purposes and it can be harnessed for its opposite, you know. And uh, if we just think about, you know, uh, Christianity is is such a strange uh, religion historically because it begins with this character Jesus, this you know, messianic Jew in um, occupied Palestine, who um, is determined to overthrow the authorities because. Uh, he knows that the kingdom of God is at hand and he is not going to subject himself to the powers of Rome or to the powers of 
the Pharisees. He's a kind of a uh, he's a rebel. <laughs> he's a he's a he's a he's an incredibly rebellious, insurrectionary figure. And within three centuries, more or less, that wild messianic cult in in occupied Palestine ends up becoming the official religion of the greatest empire in the world at the time, the Roman Empire. And that's one of the most bewildering things. Rome had perfectly good, uh, a perfectly good set of religions and somehow they became Christian. And at that point, Christianity becomes authority and Christianity becomes law. So I think religion is a malleable social phenomenon. So you can't say um, it's good or bad. It can be both at the same time. Yeah, it seems like it's a good tool to concentrate power. And so uh, I would imagine uh, if you're heading in that direction, it's really a, a very good tool. But in uh, anarchism, um, you're sort of looking for distributed decision making. You're saying people are good. Uh, they're able to make their own decisions and we expect them to make good decisions. You don't need to concentrate anything. Right, so the need right. for religion sort of goes away. I mean, well, no, it, it just think about the um, think about in this country and in, in England, the Quakers. The Quakers are fascinating because the Quakers, again, there are different strands of Protestantism. You've got people like the Calvinists who have huge influence in, in the United States, the work ethic, uh, all of this goes back to Calvinism. The Quakers believe that everyone has inside them, you know, a, a little light, right? the light of the light of that everyone is has a little piece of God inside them. So it is a way of organizing power, but in, ter in terms of the Quakers, that power is evenly distributed. It's equally distributed. This is why Quakers were against slavery, were against uh, forms of you know, economic inequality and all the rest. So. It really depends on on the religion. You can be you can have a, a, a fully you can be a fully religious person and be devoted to a you know a wide distribution of power. You can be a fully religious person and be a you know a kind of authoritarian maniac. Uh, we have to understand religion in its different manifestations in order to get some sense of that and not just reject it. That's from my wider point. Yeah. I want to jump into another book, uh, Simon. So this okay. is uh, Notes on Suicide. Okay. Um, so the second edition just came out, like um, last year. Last year, I think, right? Came out last year. That's right. Yeah, I was writing it the preface this time, exactly this time last year. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. Um, so, so I want to start. Uh, what is your sense? Uh, why suicide exists? Why suicide? Oh, why that question? Well, the the question for me was um, um, the question for me was really uh, why it is that suicide creates such strong reactions um, amongst people? Why is it something which has become uh, maybe not in the last few years, but certainly you know. You know, it's a kind of stigma. It's something we can't talk about. We'll talk about people dying or even just not saying that passing away 
that suicide is something we can't think about clearly. And we have, we have very panicked reactions to it. And so I wanted to investigate that and think about the, um, uh, the history, uh, why it is that suicide was prohibited and how that, how that arose. That was the first kind of issue. And um, the funny thing about the prohibition against suicide is that uh, within, within Christianity, it's something which only arises in the, in the Middle Ages. There's nothing in uh, the New Testament about suicide. There's, there's nothing really in, in Judaism about suicide. There's one sutra in the Quran which prohibits suicide, but it's not a big topic. But the, um, it becomes a topic in the, in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. And uh, suicide is seen as uh, a threat because you are um, you're asserting uh, uh, life is something that you're given, it's something uh, donated to you, but it's something over which you do not have power, right? That's the Christian view. And therefore, to commit suicide is to assume a power over yourself that you don't have, and it is to commit uh, a, grief, a grievous sin. And that's why it's prohibited. And so the first thing is to say, well, that, that prohibition is at least questionable. Um, so I think it's, um, uh, that was the first thing I wanted to do, to try and look into the history of the prohibition of suicide and trying to raise some, some questions about it. And the other side of it is that I don't want, you know, people to <laughs> kill themselves willy-nilly. That's, that's also the idea, the idea that there's a, uh, a right to suicide, a kind of libertarian view, I think is also questionable. I don't think that the, the idea that, uh, that we have a right to suicide turns upon assumptions about reason and autonomy, which I think are at the very least questionable. So this began me thinking, uh, thinking about, about the question of suicide. And uh, again, my, my, my effort in this, this book was simply to try and understand the phenomenon and not uh, and not to not to engage in a kind of moral, uh, a panic moral lang language. And um, so, um, in the uh, in the book, I try and look at you know some strange phenomena like suicide notes, and try and I, I, there's this whole chapter which is an analysis of suicide notes. And suicide notes are very peculiar because they often exhibit extreme uh, extreme opposition to extreme variations of emotion these emotions of hatred and and love uh, so suicide is, often, is sometimes done out of rage at say you know, being cheated on or being betrayed by someone but at the same time there'll be a declaration of love so i looked at suicide notes and um anyway so that was that was the original argument and then um also, as part of this, I was looking um, at a lot of sociological data on, on suicide and, and trying to make sense of trying to make sense of it. And um, if you look at suicide suicide rates, say, um, across the world in different cultures, um, you notice um, you notice some peculiar things. 
So, for example, there are certain cultures where there's a higher suicide rate than other cultures. There's a higher suicide rate in Hungary than there is in Austria. And you think, well, why is that? They've got roughly the same climate. Uh, maybe political conditions are slightly better in Austria than Hungary, but it doesn't explain the huge difference in the suicide rate. What is it? Are there, are there cultural factors? Uh, but the other thing about suicide rates is if, although they have these variations, uh, you know, and, and they're usually not what you think, the French suicide rate is higher than most of the Scandinavian suicide rates. People think that people in the Scandinavian countries kill themselves all the time, and that's just not empirically true. But that's by the by. But suicide rates, um, although they vary, they have a kind of, um, they're relatively stable in terms of the, the patterns over uh, the period for, for, for as long as we have statistics back to, say, the 19th century. And then the question that began to interest me is why I wrote the preface to the, the new edition was that um, things have changed, or things are changing in the last um, 10 years, we could say, 10, 11 years. So there's been a shift in, in suicide rates. And, um, and the question is, why is that? In particular, the suicide rates amongst teenage, teenage girls, amongst teenagers in general, and teenage girls in particular, have gone up significantly. And uh, why is that? Given, given that suicide rates remain not constant, they're, they're subject to variation, which could be due to you know, variations of, say, economic good fortune or bad fortune, but they, they remain reasonably constant. But something has changed in the last decade, and what's changed is really um, the impact of social media. And, um, and so is there um, a correlation between uh, between everything from mood disorder to uh, depression, suicidal ideation, and suicide, and social media use. And, um, and here I'm, I'm relying, leaning very heavily on the work of um, the Double Girls and Hate at uh, NYU and a woman called Jean Stenger, who's on the West Coast. And they've been basically. Uh, there were numerous studies being conducted um, in different parts of the world. Most of their research is based upon studies in, um, in Britain, the United States, Canada, and Australia, uh, but other studies are being done elsewhere. And these studies show that there's been um, a shift in, in suicide rates over the last 10 years, really since smartphones uh, saturated began to really saturate markets. And uh, the effects of that saturation is, is uneven in terms of gender. The effects of uh, smartphone use, social media use on, uh, on, on women seems to be worse than on men, but it's bad on both. And, um, and the question then is, well, what, do we, you know, what do we do about that? What, so why is that the case and how can we begin to think that through. And actually there was a piece, I think last week in the New York Times where Hayton and Fenger talk about um, talk about this research and um, you know the question as to what one does with it I think is is really tricky. I mean, you know, 
the only the only weapon we, we really have at our disposal is uh, legislation, which is what they try to do in the EU, which seems to be kind of you know trying to close the whatever the metaphor is, not the kennel, but the stable after the horse is bolted. But um, all we can do is ban stick a ban smartphones and go back to you know pigeons or something. That seems unlikely, but but I think at this point it's a question of just understanding that the world that we have um, somehow chosen to inhabit, a world where our uh, our lives are largely a number of very large media companies like Facebook and the rest, uh, this is having uh, significant effects on our mental health and well-being and in, in many cases it's leading to extreme uh, extreme effects that we need to try and understand. And, uh, I want to get your perspective on this, uh, Simon. So from an economic perspective, you know, I, I think of suicide as sort of an option. Mm -hmm. So you have an option to take an action, right? Typically in, in, in um, financial markets, options are never exercised prematurely because it's always valuable to keep the option alive till it expires. Uh, and so suicide in some way from a decision perspective it's a irrational decision unless the, yes. the two other conditions are satisfied. One is you have a loss in value, in this case, you know, expected uh, remaining value of life. And the uncertainty around that value is not very high, right? Mm -hmm. so, so you have sort of a precise understanding of what the remaining value is. And that value is declining, and it doesn't. It's not very uncertain. That's mm -hmm. the only case a premature exercise of that option would be rational. Mm -hmm. Now, I would think. Uh, so, I mean, I think you talk about different different categories, right? You know, people who are terminally ill, or you know, yeah. those types of things. And those categories will all have potentially different types of information, right? Yeah. And um, and and we could possibly rationalize. So going back to the social media um, question, um, one, one would think the social media related effects will have very high uncertainty. So if you're seeing suicides there, that is clearly a, you know, bad decision processes and irrational decisions. Yeah, uh, we can we can show uh, compared to, you know, other cases, other typical cases. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very <laughs> it's unclear you know, what I mean. I think there are certain cases when suicide um, can be uh, a decision that's made rationally. So, for example, there's there's a I think there are questions about that. So, for example, there was a uh, someone called Andrew Solomon who wrote a book on suicide called The Noonday The Noonday Demon, and he's mother uh, had a, a terminal illness and decided to end her life. She wanted to die with dignity, as the saying goes, and that's what she did. But for her son, uh, in this case Andrew Solomon, he didn't really 
had a say in her decision, and the effects of that upon him have been significant. So that the you know, the, the thing about suicide is is that it might be a decision that one can take, an option that one can have, but the effects of that, the way that's going to cascade across the lives of other people, I think is probably the the biggest disincentive, <laughs> to say the least. Now, with regard to um. um social media, I think it's, I mean, the, 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 the way I really began to think about this, and I don't know how you would, how you'd respond to this, but I was traveling through, I was back in England about 2019, listening to the radio, and there were a, uh, there was a story, and this had been part of a, a number of stories which had been reported over uh, a summer. And the story went roughly like this. Um, a 14-year-old girl, a 14-year-old girl was found dead in her bedroom by her parents. And um, the girl had exhibited no depressive anxiety, no extreme behavior. The parents didn't have a clue. And then there she is dead. But then they begin to, uh, then they're able to get into her smartphone and they, um, they look at what she was looking at, her Instagram feed or whatever, and they find evidence of um, cyberbullying. They find evidence that maybe she, maybe she posted a photograph of herself where she thought she looked really, really cool, and it, you know that circulated at school, and uh, she was then ridiculed by the boys or the girls in her class. And this was so much in her mind that she decided to kill herself. Now that that whole phenomenon, I think, is apart from being deeply upsetting and troubling, is is actually very uh, very suggestive because it's the way in which we use social media comparatively, right? So I look at my social media feed, you look at your social media feed, and we're looking at what other people are up to, and we think, well, their lives look fantastic. You know, they're on vacation and they're looking really good and they've got, you know, they're, they're surrounded by these beautiful people having this, well, what about me? You know, what about me? So comparison is a real issue. And that's, that's not irrational, but there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an extent to which that can be pushed where that, that comparison uh, can drive people to extreme behavior. Right? And that can take the form of um, self-harm or it can take the form of, um, uh, you know, mass killing. Someone that just goes out with an AR-15 and decides to wipe out, shoot up the neighborhood because uh, they're persuaded by something they've seen on social media. And so there is something about the, the, um, you know, the world that we've chosen to inhabit, this digital world, which is having extreme effects on us this is very very recent it's the last decade we think of it somehow as eternal because it feels like you know these things have been around forever but it wasn't the case we remember when that wasn't the case and what are these things doing to our souls as it were and they are doing something to us and we need to reflect on that yeah i mean there are two issues here simon one is uh, before 15 Clearly, the brain's decision processes are not mature. 
Yeah. So it's you are at a much higher risk of taking, you know, sort of tactical information and getting to a very quick decision. Mm -hmm. And the other question there, cyberbullying. So this is a social media interesting question, which is if you believe your life is somewhat simpler, right? Uh, as you grow up, you, you get a multifactorial, you know, uh, mm -hmm. view of life. But at 14, perhaps uh, you have a much simpler view of life, which is it's really my school, my friends. If I'm, you know, if, if something happens to that, yeah. then everything is out, you know, uh, sort of thinking, right? So there's a catastrophic sort of um, loss in your mind, and then your brain is not really able to maturely reach a decision. So this okay. is... Yeah. Go ahead. Do you think that's not true of adults then? For, for uh, so adults are thinking very catastrophic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw some interesting data the other day which showed that, you know, we used to think that people get mature, uh, girls get mature faster than boys, uh, obviously, but we used to think that they get mature by 15, 16. But then because people are going to school for many, many years, they're going to graduate school, they're going to professional schools, uh, they're going for PhDs and so on. Mm -hmm. It seems like uh, if you look at the data, it seems like they're going to keep their brain s somewhat in a sort of an experimental condition, meaning less not mature. They still want to explore and experiment, take risks. Yeah. Uh, and that extends all the way to 25 now because of the you know, sort of the intensive education system that uh, kids are going through. Which, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with all of that, but I'm not so keen on the, the brain talk. I think the brain in the... Yeah, the brain is great, and there it is, uh, the, condition, the condition for our mental activity and therefore for, uh, for the world. But I look at things more from a, from more of a, a social perspective. And the, if you think about, there was, there was, a, there was a, a word that was introduced to the Oxford English Dictionary 15 years ago called adultescence. Not adolescence, but adolescence. So an infinitely extended adolescence. And it is the case that, you know, the world that I grew up in, in, uh, in England in the 1960s and 70s, which was one where you were, you were an adult at 16 and you were expected to get to work and, uh, you know, contribute to the household and, and do things and, um, and grow up, and the way and the way you and the way that was done socially was forms, you know, publicly acceptable forms of behaviour, but also around things like, um, you know, going to the pub. I mean, going to the pub was hugely important in terms of learning how to be a grown up, because you looked at the older people in the pub and you, you looked at them and you thought, well, I, I should try and behave the way they behave, and then you learn. Now. With the kind of breakdown of all of those codes and uh, behaviours, it's it's kind of, it's kind of extended childhood, um, seemingly endlessly, and um, that kind of worries me. You know, I think the um, I think that a lot of adults see themselves as sort of big children in a way, and they should um, and that maybe underestimates children. Maybe children are wiser than us, but I don't know. But whether this is brain stuff, whether this is more of a, 
a social phenomenon. I, I think I, I disagree with you a bit on that. Yeah. I put more emphasis. I'm not. I put more emphasis. I tend to, you know, when when, when Wittgenstein says, um, you know, "Don't think, look." There's a tendency we have towards um, when we want to answer a question towards you know, ratiocinating internally and imagining the brain is the condition for such ratiocination. But also, what we fail to do in that is to look at the world, look at what's happening, and to observe it. I'm a great believer in um, in simple observation, uh, simple observation of social phenomena, and trying to understand them and understand them historically and how they they change. I guess that would be a slight difference. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to finish up with another book, uh, Simon. So, this is another fascinating book. What we think about when we think about soccer um, oh, yes. or football, <laughs> or football in, yeah. in, in Europe. Uh, so I, I have to say I'm not a big soccer fan. Um, I grew up playing cricket, which is uh, mm -hmm. sort of a little different game than soccer. But so, so what are we talking about here? Uh, I, I, I saw a little bit of your talk around this in terms of thinking about soccer as a matrix of people and the uh, yeah. formation, sort mm -hmm. of like like a war, uh, you know, people moving yeah. around. So, so what to say? What's the concept here? Well, okay, it, uh, yeah, it's it's a good question. The the um, well, going back to the brain, it's the uh, so for example, one thing that happens in in soccer, but it happens in other sports as well, is that when a player does a particularly extraordinary thing, scores a goal or hits a six or whatever, you know, the the the, the, the television interview will say so. What was going through your mind at that time? And the sportsman or sportswoman tries to give an answer, but you know that nothing was going through their head at that. They were just, they were doing what they do excellently. They were doing what they do very well. And play is a very good example of something which is not in the head. Play is something which is out there. You are, you are playing on a playing field with other people in the presence of spectators and what you have there is a kind of is a shared social kind of ecstatic phenomenon and it's um i guess i mean i mean football is soccerism it's you know for me it's really on the one hand really in terms of you know who i am it's about as deep as it goes my on my on my grandmother's grave which i visited last month actually i was back in england and uh, there's a liverpool football club you know the badge is on is on her grave and i i thought there was nothing strange about that until i photographed it and sent it to someone and and my father was a passionate fan i am and my my son is 29 is too so that's like a, a century and all that we really have in common is this team and this team linked to a city so it's about place it's about who you are it's about an identification with what that place means and the values which you think are associated with that that place it's a kind of almost tribal sense of identity and um and that can be really nasty but it can also be powerful and good and um i mean football is a is a, is a great kind of metaphor for the world in the sense in which um a football team, um, you know, I mean, there are great, there are great managers of, 
my boyhood hero was Bill Shankly, the manager of Liverpool Football Club, and he used to say that you know football is socialism. Football is socialism. It's based on equality, and we all play together, and we're all equal when we play, um, which is a very nice thing to to believe. And there's a kind of equality between the players and the other players and the fans and everyone's in it together. But, but you know the only thing that makes this possible in the modern game is money. So there's a real contradiction in football between um, the social, you know, like egalitarian ideas of, of what sport is and the money, often the, the quite dirty money that makes the whole thing possible. So you can't just feel good about the game. But I think that... Um, I think that in not, I'm not sure in all sports, certainly in cricket and uh, certainly in in, in, um, in soccer, it is the possibility of entering another another cosmos, another universe for a certain period of time, and a universe where the usual moral rules and the usual kind of things that you're meant to feel good or bad about. Are suspended for the time of the play, and you can fully engage with it in a way that is um, transporting and uh, and powerful. And it's almost, I say, it's almost like you know, if if we I mean for us to, let's say for, for 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 many people, particularly living somewhere like the United States, it's very hard to imagine living in an animistic universe, the kind of universe that. We imagine that anthropologists describe with say tribes in the uh, the Amazon or whatever it might be. Uh, it's hard to imagine that, but you do imagine that one lives that in the experience of sport. Right? So the the hope that one has that your team is going to win, you know, is an irrational hope. You know, it's they're probably going to lose ultimately. You know, you've got you've got a league with twenty teams in, nineteen of those teams are going to lose. But you still hope that they're going to win. That hope is, a, is an irrational hope that one can still uh, one can still have an expectation of that. So there is something almost magical about the um, uh, the world of sport, which is which is very interesting to me. And um, and then I'm, I'm fascinated. I do lots of other things as well. But that's amazing. Football is a, a shared, ecstatic time away from the world that gives us a kind of picture of the world in, in reverse. So that makes sense. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, you know, because the number of scores is is sort of small in soccer, right? You know, a few goals um, one way or the other. Yeah. So there is some sort of a time dilation effect. Is is there so you know you you watch a game for ninety minutes, what you really remember are the goals or perhaps a goal saving moment right so do you do you think sort of um how, how is it sort of stored i wonder you know you, you you're there for 90 minutes you, you saw everything but you don't remember most of it depends how you watch i mean you watch if you watch the game i mean the, the terrible thing about watching soccer with americans with all <laughs> with all apologies to you know my american friends is that they uh They'll often say things at the wrong time. They'll say, you know, oh, he's got the ball. Oh, great kick. You know, uh, oh, when someone gets the ball. Whereas often 
someone that is a real soccer fan will be very quiet watching a game. And you're watching the game incredibly intensely. Mm-hmm. And actually the goals are the goals are more like the, the punctuation mark at the end, the period at the end of the sentence. It's about the sentence. It's the syntax that is important, not the, the period. And um, so when I'm watching the game, this is the great thing about watching games live, is you can see what's not happening, right? You look at the players that aren't moving, how they're positioning, what you're anticipating, all sorts of things that, that could happen, which might happen, which might not happen. So I think there's a terrible... Um, uh, so when you, you know, you watch, you know, the way they'll, they'll put it on, 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 on the media, you know, there'll be you know, the best, the best, the goals from today's, today's games. That's fine. Goals look great. But it's the play that's important. And the fact that football is a low-scoring game, I think, is its real beauty. Uh, there's a great Italian soccer writer called Gianni Gerri, I think. I forget his name. That might not be his name. And he said the most beautiful thing in the world is a 0-0 game, a nil-nil game, because there you just get to see the play without the... It's like, a, it's like, it's like syntax without, uh, without periods, and that's, uh, that's the most beautiful thing of all. And I tend to agree with that. Like, I like... I love defending. I love watching. I like watching players who stop other players from playing. There's a real beauty in that. So, um, yeah, the, the beauty of the zero zero game is that it will continue to be intense all mm-hmm. the way to the end because either team could still have an opportunity, right? If it's lopsided game uh, like Germany beating Brazil seven one or something, yeah. you know. But, <laughs> but, this is the point. Uh, you know, things are sort of dying down, right? So the game is over lot before the game is actually over. We're also in cricket, what I love about test cricket, about five-day cricket, is that, you know, when I think back to childhood or youth, there'd be, you know, uh, five-day test at, you know, Edgebaston or something, you know, England against India, and, you know, then the, the last day's play is rained off and it's declared a draw. So all of this effort goes into this extraordinary contest between these two two teams, and then rain stop playing, and everyone goes inside and has a you know something to eat and something to drink, and, and there's a sense in which that is a that's proper drama. So I think there's a, there's a sense in which sport has been, you know, particularly in the U.S., has kind of reduced this idea of scoring, right? just a basketball being the best example of that. It's, yeah. You know, Dunk after dunk after dunk. I think that's uh, sport is a play is something else, and play that's really interesting to me. The weather is an interesting thing, Simon. American football, as you know, seldom is abandoned because of bad weather. I mean, right. we could have snow coming down like hell, and you know, the yes. game is going to go on. Now, what is the situation in soccer? Is, is soccer games abandoned because of rain? Uh, rarely. Rarely, I mean, it's. Um, I was talking to a, uh, or I was emailing with this Italian guy who I, I, a complete stranger, but he read my, he read my soccer book in Italian, and he was uh, uh, from Turin, a fan of Juventus, and he was reminding me of there was this famous game in 1985 between Liverpool and Juventus, which was the the Champions League final, the old European Cup. And uh, a wall collapsed, caused by the misbehaviour of Liverpool fans, and 42 Italian fans were killed. And 
and they played the game. Mm. And they played the game. And that seemed that I mean that's happily unimaginable at this point, but um I mean, you know, games are, are pretty rarely abandoned. And um and also the war thing is, is interesting that the I think the soccer gives allows allows a kind of healthy rivalry uh, which doesn't extend to um, killing or harm. So, for example, you know, as a Liverpool fan, I I hate Manchester United. I objectively hate Manchester United, but I don't, you know, want to do any harm to their fans and I understand why they're a great team and understand their history and uh, I respect who they are and I respect their fans. So you can have this intense antagonism towards something, but it's not, it doesn't have to lead to, you know, um, rage. I think that would be a, that would be a very good lesson to learn um, at this point historically, where in a sense, the, um, you know, the, the tendency we have, you know, politically is for everything to inflame into antagonism and opposition and then that's meant to lead to that leads to a, a terrible conflict antagonism is okay right um hurting people is not okay they're not the same thing <laughs> yeah it appears very culturally integrated right it's not like if you don't have a football culture it's very difficult to enter the enter the market, so to speak, right? I mean, it is very few countries have come from um, not playing football for a long time into prominence, and I think that's yeah. true for you know games like cricket too. So it, it's almost like you have to grow up with it to yeah. really really yeah. get a fascination for it, right? It's strange, that, isn't it? It's strange because also how recent these things are. That you know the the codification of the of sports, you know, what became American football, what became, you know, rugby, what became association football or soccer, these things are happening in the middle to late 19th century. They're very recent, recent phenomena historically. And um, it's, um, you know, it's true. It's true. I think it's, um, oh, I forgot what the point was there. You were saying something and I was going to, I was going to say something, my mind went blank. I think my phone just made a noise. Oh, uh, yes. So, we, you know, we're talking about sort of cultural... Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the strange thing is that, it, it, you know, for example, China at the moment, China has made, uh, you know, a central president, Xi, uh, made a decision with the, you know, the central committee to make China uh, a sort of superpower. Mm. And uh, for a number of years, it looked like that was was going to happen and huge amounts of money were put into Chinese clubs and it's not really happened, right? Mm. Uh, it, so it does seem to require a, a deeper uh, social and cultural mix. And that's odd, isn't it? In, insofar as this, these, are, these things aren't innocent. If you look at the, you know, the, the, spread, of, the spread of cricket, um, you know, in the countries of the, the former British Empire, I mean, this is how, I mean, why would, why would this be such a popular game? If this, this is, this is the colonial game, right? This is the great colonial game, cricket, um, as, as, you know, as uh, G.R. James says, but it, it, it's a kind of, you know, but why, why would that hang around? Why not immediately abandon it and start 
doing something else. And that was tried in some contexts. So for example, in, in Ireland, after the... Um, very sports on Gaelic sports against uh, what was seen as the colonial sports of, of, of football and the rest, but it didn't really work that well. So there's something about the, um, the kind of cultural, social depth of these sports, and uh, you do need a certain a deeper response to kind of deeper fabric. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I wish I knew the answer. Yeah, I remember Japan uh, attempted to get into baseball or cricket, they had to pick one of them, and they <laughs> and they went to hundreds and hundreds of games, and I think they ended up picking baseball. Yes, they did. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think they did a reasonably good job with it, right? I mean, J J Japan has produced some good baseball players, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. Japanese tend to do a pretty good job at everything <laughs> <laughs> when they turn their attention to it. So yeah. But uh, you can't help thinking it would be a mistake. Would it be great to have a Japanese cricket team? That would be that would, that would be interesting. Yeah. But um, but yes, I um, I wish I could watch cricket more. But um, <laughs> as I was saying before, it doesn't work with the time zone. Excellent. So so you you having a very productive time as part of the pandemic. You are. Yeah. So is the is the mystical anarchism is that going to be turned into a book? Is yeah, it probably like, be a book. Probably just called mysticism, and um, you know, with God willing, that will be done by some point at the end of the year. I don't. I never feel that I'm productive. I feel. Uh, I, I fully accept this is self-deception, but for me, everything feels slow, and everything feels like I've been doing it for years and years and years. So, if I look at the the books that I've written, they all stretch back decades for me. Um, so it feels like they've been around for, for too long. So getting things finished is a way of getting them out of my head and then I don't have to think about them anymore. So from the outside, it might look like productive productivity. From the inside, it looks like, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll finally be rid of this thing and I can free up my head to think about something else. Mm. I guess what I like to do is to, is to think about other things. And I like, um, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's not something that's, recommended for academics you're meant to specialize and work with your speciality but i don't i i have kind of um you know polymorphous tastes i like to move from one thing to another because it keeps things fresh and interesting right right excellent yeah this has been great simon thanks so much for spending yeah, thank time you very you. much for, thank you very, thank you gil thank you for your questions and very nice to talk to you thank you all right bye bye I'm hanging up now. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.